This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I chat with Dr. Tara T. Green, founding chair and class distinguished professor in the Department of African American Studies at the University of Houston. Dr. Green is on to discuss her new book, Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson. Enjoy the conversation, family. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Green. How are you doing today? I am well. Thank you so much. Of course, of course. And so I'm very interested to talk to you today about your amazing book, uh, Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson. And so to begin, um, you know, coming from the church background, you know, what is the Genesis story uh, behind this fantastic book? Yes, well, Alice Dunbar Nelson is an author that I met when I was a student at Dillard University. She graduated from Strait College, which would merge with New Orleans University to become Dillard University. I also grew up in the New Orleans area, but I did not know Alice Dunbar Nelson. I did not learn very much about the presence of people of African descent in New Orleans at all when um, I had to take Louisiana history in the eighth grade. So um, gotcha. <laughs> I learned about her. She was just someone that stayed in my mind. And some years later, I would get curious. And I learned that her papers are housed at the University of Delaware. And I thought, I have some research money. Let me go up there and see what's in those papers. And that's where the journey became began. And so that that's a great story. And as somebody who um, actually um, so I actually didn't mention this before we started, but um, I actually did my first year of uh, my Ph.D. work at the University of Delaware and got to meet, you know, got to work with, um, you know, a lot of folks over in English like uh, Dr. Uh, Gabrielle Foreman and uh, one of my fellow graduate students, um, uh, Monet um, Timmons, uh, as well, and who I, b- I believe it looks like you uh, also know. 
Um, and so I, as you, didn't know about her. And, you know, it was only there for a year. So I didn't exactly get, you know, uh, a long time to 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 uh, to learn about her necessarily. Uh, but she is definitely certainly an, um, uh, an important person that I know now is when I think about her, I, you know, New Orleans as well, but also I think about her uh, in the context of of, of Delaware and the uh, Delaware um, Valley just generally. And so, um, and also I noticed too, you said that, uh, you know, you're an HBCU uh, a grad as well. Okay, okay. Uh, Florida A&M University in the house, you know, uh, you know, we always got to rep uh, FAMU and uh, y'all have a, or at least had, I think, a great um, a president, Dr. Kimbrough, I think, who's now here in Atlanta. Um, and so one of the questions I'm always interested in, and especially we spoke about dissertation work while uh, we were prepping uh, earlier before the interview. Um, and so the question of, of writing and also challenges, as I also mentioned, I just uh, submitted my first uh, dissertation chapter to my advisor. So I'm interested um, here to ask you, what was that largest challenge you faced while constructing, researching for, and also writing uh, this book? Well, the largest challenge may be as a biographer trying to account for absences in the archive. And one way that I was able to account for that, keeping in mind that it took me 10 years to write, revise, and to find a publisher for this book. So that's a whole other story. But during those 10 years, the Black um, newspaper database became available. And that's just the greatest resource. It's, it's available the Library of Congress's website. And so what I was able to do was to begin to, in, in the latter stages of writing the book, to construct something about her childhood in New Orleans. So because those Black newspaper writers would just make these little references. One of, one of my favorite references is actually on Langston Hughes, where it says, Langston Hughes didn't go to school today because he was sick. <laughs> Why is that newspaper-worthy? Um, but I was able to find a speech and some connections that she had in the community that those were the kinds of things that were not in her papers because she did not really begin to collect the story of her life until she met Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So that, that early correspondence, the first letter to him is actually what we can find in that archive. And then there are times later in the last couple of years of her life where that isn't in the Delaware archive really. So I had to go to other archives right there in Atlanta and also was able to find some things in that black newspaper archive that, and also some letters that she had written to her second husband that are at Howard University that helped me to understand that she had maintained this friendship with her second husband while she was married to her third. <laughs> that was important to know. One of the things about her health that I would not have known otherwise. So um, there are still some periods that I don't know much about because we just don't have the, the written record, but I was able to, I, I think, do a pretty good job of, of piecing her life together. 
And to to park it here for a moment, I'm, I noticed you had actually uh, said earlier in your remarks, you know, that there's a story there in terms of, you know, you said it took about um, 10 years from, you know, writing and pitching and, you know, effectively the whole, the whole process. Um, so, so, you know, if, if you have the time, you know, here, I'd love to hear more about that as well, in, in part because, you know, thinking about being a biographer and trying to compile, you know, I think it's not only the, the writing and, and the compiling that you have to do as a biographer, but also being able to, to pitch that as well. So, you know, I, I'd also be interested to learn more uh, about that process for you, especially because as your amazing African-American studies page shows, you know, you're also the award-winning author and editor of six books. So, you know, I'm also interested as well, you know, in connection to your other work. Yeah, well, this one is a very different genre, writing a biography that also includes work about her analysis of her literature. And so I'm trained as an autobiography studies scholar, as well as a fiction scholar also. Writing a biography is a different genre. And I was inspired to continue the work because as I wrote about her, there were two things that we had in common. One is that she was getting older. So I'm able to see that as, it, as it's taking place. And secondly, she's this woman who teaches English, but she writes in all of these different genres. And much of her work is not published during her lifetime. And, and it's still not published. People still ask me about having access to her work. So um, I began to understand some of what she would write about in her diary, those frustrations of not being able to get work published, which became my inspiration for continuing to send the work out. So it wasn't that people were not interested in her story. It would go to reviewers who would say sometimes some very terrible and disheartening things. At one point, someone told me, that it should not be published and that I should just carve it up and, and publish it as some essays. And Whoa. Um, I think that there were comments that were made about not understanding or wanting to understand her sexual identity because she is a woman who's married to men three times, but she also does have relationships with women as well. It's not my job to judge that it's my job to tell the story and so there are certain biases that can occur in the peer review process that i feel like i had to deal with so it finally got in the hands of people who wanted to hear the story who i think were familiar with alice dunbar nelson in such a way that they just wanted to know the story, but also appreciate it and to give some advice on some feedback on how to move the project forward. And it took 10 years for me to get to that point. And by that point, I was writing out of resistance to an academy and to readers 
who seem to be resistant to a black woman's story. Let me put it that way to that particular mm. black woman's story, because she's not a Mary Church Terrell. She's not a, an Ida B. Wells. And those stories are important, but she lived a very different life. So I'll talk more about that um, on the question of respectability, but she just lived a very different life, which is why I found her to be intriguing and inspiring as well. Yeah. And oh my gosh, the, the, the point about, you know, a, a particular black woman's story that publishers and, and reviewers, um, you know, are not keen to follow is just, you know, goes to kudos for you for, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess, uh, sticking it out to continue on. Um, and, and in a way I read your intro and acknowledgements, especially as, you know, you voicing some of that, you know, I guess, I guess frustration ab about it as well. And, and also the triumph of it as well. And, you know, for this particular important figure, um, and, and so it also, I think, connects to the next question about she's not a uh, Ida B. Wells or, or, you know, the series of other uh, more prominent club women, black women activists, writers, you know, because you can pick a different label for her depending on the decade. For, you know, it's, 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 she can fit them all well. Um, but she's not as notable as those folks or even obviously her uh, one of her husbands as well, her first husband. And so for me, I'm also thinking about misconception. So uh, for you as the, the biographer and, and someone who's, who's you know, written about her, um, what are the biggest misconceptions people have about Alice Dunbar Nelson in, in your eyes? Well, I think the biggest misconception is that she's a Har Harlem Renaissance um, figure. She was writing long before the Harlem Renaissance because she was born in 1875. So her first collection comes out in 1895 and she is a pioneer in the black club women's movement. And I think that she is not respected and appreciated for being on the ground doing that work. And it was work that she continued to do in the last years of her life when she was in Delaware. So um, that's the, the largest misconception for me is every time I, I hear her as connected to the Harlem Renaissance, I sort of cringe. That's not to say though, that she was not writing during the Harlem Renaissance. She was older and the work that she's doing, there's, there's a whole chapter that I have about her journalism work. That's the work that she's able to get published and that is the work that that genre is what she uses to be able to push forward really the Harlem Renaissance and black artists during that time. So, um, and then I think that there are other things and it's, it's just really that people don't know her. So, you know, before this book, people would see and think of her as being the wife of Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Not that she did not recognize that it was important to keep that name Dunbar long after his death, but as I always tell people, rather than to see the woman through the man, I want people to see if, if necessary, the man through the woman. 
So he was the first of three husbands. When he died, she was young enough that she was able to, to marry two more times and continue. Mm-hmm. To, I mean, her life really took off in terms of her political activism after his death. And it's a mistake then to sort of only connect her to Paul Lawrence Dunbar, not understand the the enormous amount of work and energy that she put into advancing rights for women, period, and for Black people in the United States of America. And for me, that point is very important because I even think about the first time I, I always think about uh, the the moments of entry. Uh, so you had mentioned, um, you know, your your first time hearing about Alice Dunbar Nelson. For me, I actually um, I actually came to know both uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar and Alice Dunbar Nelson in the same class when I took um, a course at FAMU, um, and I remember I forget the name, but it was. Um, it, oh my gosh, it, I've, it, the name's escaping me, but effectively it was a book where, you know, we're learning about both figures. Um, and for me, that was interesting looking back because, you know, when I was an undergrad, I, you know, I, I was trying to get out of, I was trying to finish. I wasn't, you know, exactly trying to understand things as well as I am now. But it's interesting thinking back where I didn't, honestly didn't know who Paul Lawrence Dunbar was before that class. But as I come out of that class and now in the last decade have definitely learned much more about black writers. Um, it is interesting thinking about the points of entry and how that can even uh, change how you understand a misconception, even just from a personal uh, standpoint. Um, and so another question I had for you um, as a, as a biographer, and I'm sorry if you can hear the people mowing in the background is, you know, we're all at home and, you know, so, uh, but um, something that I noticed as well um, while reading biographies that I've really been interested in, because I know um, Dr. Farmer, Dr. Ashley Farmer, Dr. Anastasia Kerwood, uh, Dr. Casey Ewing, and Dr. Tunisha Ford have been doing this work on a Black women's biography. And so I've been really interested about the different vantage points of biographies, because you're always going to have, hopefully, especially, you know, for different people, have different biographies. But each one has its own, um, every person is different. They have their own particular slant. So I'm interested for you, um, what was ultimately your biggest goal for your readers that are engaging uh, your, your work in, in this book? What, what's the biggest, or, you know, it doesn't have to be even just one goal. What are some of your biggest goals that you had in mind uh, for your readers while reading this book that they will purchase, by the way? Yeah, well, the biggest compliment that I get, the most appreciated, is that it's accessible. So that people who do not have a PhD in English or a PhD in history, that when they read it, they understand what I've written. So that's always extremely important to me. Um And I keep that in mind when I am writing. A second goal for me for this book was to get the book published. And again, I say that I was motivated really by that because I feel strongly 
that people need to know the story of a woman who was abused, a woman who had very few options in the United States at a particular time, this woman who contributed to my ability to be able to vote, as we see a woman who is of African descent, of Indian descent, who was vice president. That happened because of the work that women were doing, Black women were doing at this particular time. And I can go on. And the idea that people did not know that was sad to me. And so if I am pleased, you know, Toni Morrison said you, I, I would write the book that I would want to read. This was the book that I would want to read. This is the woman that I would want to know about. And again, wanting to share her story with people and to inspire them was my goal in continuing to do the work. And, you know, you, you had actually mentioned it um, in different points and, and especially about um, how um, love, activism, and the respectable life of Alistair Mar Nelson uh, came to be in terms of silences, even that you're receiving from reviewers, um, you know, more so than trying to silence. Uh, but also your book engages, um, you know, a particular uh, black woman um, intellectual and, and thinker and writer. Um, but archival silence, once again, plays a, a major role. And some of it is, it, as you show in the book, is not exactly uh, something that, you know, it, in certain ways it can also be seen as the figure trying to uh, shroud, you know, themselves in a particular form of mystery. And so I'm interested to know for you, the concept of archival silence, you know, once again, plays a massive role. So how did you try to uh, navigate archival silence to understand uh, Alice Dunbar Nelson's complex life? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's something that I, I'm sure the readers and the listeners of this podcast will be interested to know. Mm -hmm. Well, part of that archival silence comes from a practice of silence that starts because of her paternity <laughs> and not saying what that is. And so then the archive is silent in that way because it doesn't reveal any details whatsoever about her father. And when we begin to look at those public records, we find um, you know, the mysteries around that. So then we have to rely on what is probably the case with the father. But then that also means that there are some diaries that seem to be missing. And she alludes in a short story that there's this tradition of people in New Orleans uh, burning diaries at the end of the year. <laughs> and I always like to present that when I'm talking to an audience in New Orleans because people look around and say, well, I've never heard of that. Well, I hadn't heard of it either. So uh, <laughs> so, so the ways in Definitely which... interesting. Right? <laughs> the ways in which she creates these stories around the silences that she has probably forced into these archives, which is that she probably burned those, <laughs> those diaries or some letters also because we find that there are times in which there are some letters that aren't there for any number of reasons because she sent them to a person and the person may have read them and thrown them away or um, any number of things. But certainly those diaries 
those missing diaries, I refuse to believe that she was not writing during certain periods. I think that she just simply destroyed them for any number of reasons. The woman was a pack rat. And so uh, she kept all of these materials, including letters and poems that reveal that she did have desire for women. So um, why is it then that there are some bits and pieces that seem to be missing from her life in those archives? And so those are the kinds of silences they force us to ask questions about why as much as we might ask, well, I wonder what was in them. And even there's one area where she writes a diary in this way in which she turns the pages around um, and writes in this sort of weird way. Um, I think that there's some coding that's happening there. So the silences also become coded because why would she do that? Did she not have access to paper? She doesn't do this anyplace else. So, you know, as a researcher, that becomes some of the fun work of trying to figure out if the, the answer isn't one plus one equals two, it becomes a formula that's much more complicated and that I can sort of dig into and think about and, and reimagine what that may have meant for this black woman at this particular time in her life. And what, what the, the coolest part about that, uh, your answer, uh, you know, I, whenever you get someone, you know, chuckling about the experience of researching, I, I always find it fascinating and, and fun, but also um, it, it goes into the, the granular uh, material nature of someone's life um, that as a biographer, I'm sure you have to get into, right? At some point. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the fun part. And so I can give you an example. I went into this having read online that she is this black queer woman. And I don't know that until I actually see the evidence myself. And I can remember, so when we go to an archive and we ask for these materials, they can bring these boxes out just whenever they bring the boxes out. So it's not like it's chronological that the first box that, that you may get to is, is the first 10 years of a person's life and then it's the next 10 years and that kind of thing. And so my very first visit to the University of Delaware, I read the letters that were written to her by um, Edwina Cruz. And that was when I knew that for sure, I read it myself with my own eyes that these women were lovers. And so then that begins to help me to understand who she was at a, as a woman and then later on, I have students, Black queer students, who are saying to me that an early poem looks like it was written about a woman, but in fact, I'm reading it, and she's very clear that it's between a man and a woman. But they're seeing something that I'm not seeing, and I have to change the way that I'm thinking about it. 
And so all of this is happening over this 10 years, but it begins with me reading those letters and she's young enough that I know that I have to keep this in mind, at least as I'm reading some of her other work. And then all these other things start to fall out. You know, <laughs> there's a poem from this woman that I talk about. Um, there's a poem that, sh- that hadn't been published by her during her life about this woman, Inez. I still don't know who that person is. But then there are these, these other things that she's writing in these letters about these other women. So all of this helps me to get a fuller picture of who this woman was in her personal life and not so much in her public life. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And the the public-private divide, I think, is definitely something that, you know, in terms of challenges going back there, you, you definitely uh, uh, were able to... Uh, surmount uh i was thinking you never hear surmount you always hear insurmountable odd but you know that mm-hmm. uh, that wasn't necessarily that for you um but an adversary i guess in a way that maybe not an adversary um a uh, understanding i guess uh that you came up against and and engaged with um in the text um was respectability politics or the politics of respectability it's always mm-hmm. you know it's always interesting the the choice of uh, what people choose there. So uh, for you, and, and because it's plays such an important role in the book, I'm just going to leave this a very wide open. Um, what did respectability politics slash the politics of respectability mean to Alice Dunbar Nelson in her life? Um, and, and how did you engage, um, you know, respectability politics in your own work here in, in your amazing biography? Well, it meant that silence becomes extremely important because of that missing father. And it also means that the public performance becomes extremely important. And so what is that public performance? It means that she is a heterosexual um, Black woman who loves being Black, who loves the race. I'm not saying that she did not love being Black, that she didn't love the race, because I believe that she did, but she was not a heterosexual woman. So why is she doing this? Because if she is to do the work of in society of advancing the race, the race does not leave room for this Black woman to be engaged in any way sexually with women. That does not advance the importance of the Black family extremely central to the advancement of the black race. You have a man, you have a woman, you have a child. Um, You worry about educating the children. And so she had the education part as an educator, but um, she doesn't have children, probably for a number of health reasons. 
But again, she also loves women. So that's the part of her life that she has to keep secret. And the politics of respectability really demand that if you are going to be respected in society, that anything that falls outside of that norm is uh, simply unacceptable to be accepted by Black folks and by a larger society as well. And absolutely. And, and that's definitely something that um, at every crux of at every moment of of her life, she had to confront. Um, and it also made me think as well to, to this question um, about, you know, not only the politics, politics of respectability, but um, love, you know, because ultimately I think love and respectability within the life of Alison Barnelson are very much intertwined because she's, as you just showed, uh, she loved women and, and conceivably loved men, at least to the point of marrying them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm interested to know, you know, because love is a major, uh, theme, I would say as a, as a reader of, of your book. So, um, what does the role of love play in, in, in your biography as well? Mm-hmm. Well, as far as I'm concerned, my guidance was that I was writing a love story. And love isn't just romantic love. She loved Black people to the point where she was always doing something to advance Black folks. Now, we can debate, and I think that that debate would be there just like we would Du Bois or Booker T. Washington if we agree with the tactics or how they viewed other black people because of class differences and so on and so forth. We do that now when we think about our leaders in society. But I can tell you she loved black people. The woman did not have very much money at all. She would patch her clothes together, but she would patch those clothes together to go out there and to give a speech. And that speech could have been about suffrage rights for women. It may have been about a um, case because by the time she dies in 1935, she is also working around um, Black people having access to education, Black people um, always dealing with violence against Black people. In fact, she was fighting for the anti-lynching bill which of course we've only gotten within the last couple of years past in this country, but it would have made a major difference during the time in which it was very common for black folks to find themselves hanging from trees. And so she understood that and she fought for it. So it wasn't just the love story of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, which was something that has been written and, and that people have some inkling of but it was also the long and complicated love story of being Black and of wanting to see Black people have access and respect in the United States of America at a particular time. She never gave up on that. She just didn't give up on it. And she loved children too. She loved teaching. 
looking at the work that she was doing in her preparation, she went to um, Columbia, Cornell, and the University of Pennsylvania. She was a lifelong learner. And she did that so that she could return to that school in Delaware, Howard School, which is still there, and to educate those children and to just to do the work in the community that would have an impact, she thought, across the nation. Gotta love black educators. <laughs> you know, I, I just just gotta love them. Um, and and I think like that was the part that, you know, learning about figures and, and specifically those with an education background and, you know, seeing themselves as lifelong, not only educators, but educating, you know, themselves as well. And this also is a way for me to transition to our final round of questions where what does Alice Dunbar Nelson mean to you? Because you obviously wrote the the biography but personally you know taking the gaze off of of her and to focus on you for for a moment what does uh alice dunbar nelson mean to you so much you know i mean basically i lived with a woman for 10 years <laughs> her papers took over places where i lived and so what did i learn from that woman i learned from a woman that uh, to never give up, really. I think that being married to a man who was abusive before she married and during their marriage, what that could have done to her in terms of even wanting to have relationships with other men, she was able to work through that without any sort of resources that we have now. She doesn't use the word rape, but she was raped. So, she works through that and she allows herself to love others, men and women. I find that um, inspiring um, because a lot of black women still have to deal with those kinds of challenges. I was inspired by the fact that if it didn't work out in terms of her getting a prize or something for her poetry or even getting something published that she didn't stop writing. She continued to write. That was really important to me to finish her biography. And I really respect a woman who will continue to go to school that she wanted to know. And so when we did not have this such thing as black studies or, or libraries where somebody could go in and find a book written by a black person, she was friends with Arturo Schoenberg and um, she was friends with W.E.B. Du Bois and I have read letters in which she wrote to them and put together anthologies that were about black writing very early in the 20th century. And so um, she was also a woman that had this wonderful social life. So <laughs> the lovers, she loved playing cards. She loved getting dressed up to go to events. 
She loved, um, even though she didn't know how to drive, she tried to learn. And that's I just find some of the most hilarious part of, of her biography because she bought a car and didn't know how to drive it and had no business wow. at times where she tried to do that. She couldn't afford to keep the car. But um, so she would get on a train and make her way up and down the East Coast to be available at events. But she was also a woman who was just downright funny. And reading her diaries and some of the references that she makes, you know, some people say, well, she was a messy woman, um, but she was just also funny and private in ways in which we don't necessarily see that in her public writing. So I was able to capture and to learn about the wholeness of a woman and to see her in that way, rather than just being one of these figures who, who was a writer or an activist. She really was a woman who tried to have a life of balance, who loved drama, by the way. I think I think that she really just sort of loved the drama of life as well. <laughs> so, so returning to you here uh, for a moment, did you learn anything about yourself while writing this book as well? Yourself as a thinker, writer, person even? Well, I, you know, I found a spirit of perseverance that I, I had never been challenged in that way before. I've, I've been lucky in the sense that if I wasn't able to get the attention of one press, then revising it and, and sending it out to the second press, I would get it accepted. It would go through peer review and I would be fine. So um, hence the, the other five books that I published. But this <laughs> Right, right. Uh, forced me to rethink writing and I still don't know if I got it right but at some point you just have to say this is what I'm going to get out to the public but um, I've certainly found a spirit of perseverance that really came from studying this period I did not know much at all really about the late 19th century or about black women's club movement. That was not something that had been taught to me and I was surprised and disgusted that it had not been. So I had to learn quite a bit about a period that I wasn't very familiar with and also got an opportunity to learn about New Orleans history that um, and what black women did and the legacy of that that I knew something about, but I didn't, you know, we don't always know the origins of, of some things. And so um, I continue to learn every time I make a presentation, especially in New Orleans about this work because um, people begin to see themselves in the story as well. And so as we wrap up, um, I wanna also ask you um, to, Take, take take a moment to uh, tell our listeners as well about, you know, you're not only the author of this book, but you're also a professor. You're a writer. And so what excites you most about the work that you do as a writer and a professor now at the mm -hmm. University of Houston? Yeah, well, because I get to tell stories and listen to stories. Part of that comes out of being an only child and having to sit quietly and pretend like I'm not there <laughs> as the adults speak. But mm -hmm. um, 
And so I think that some of those listening skills were honed because my ears would always perk up more so when um, some sort of story was being told. And I see myself then as a storyteller from the South. I'm certainly a Southern girl. And I think that it's, I find it an honor to be able to write the stories of Black folks, but I've also been getting more so into oral histories over the past few years. Some of that work is archived in the Black Lives Matter archive at the University of North Carolina Greensboro's website, library website. And that was where I was really able to get into the community. And so, you know, it's more than just these figures that we grow up with, but who are the everyday people who are doing work to affect change in their local communities? And that's what, where Alice Dunbar Nelson starts off, is trying to affect change in her local community. And so that is not work that's historical. That is also work that is contemporary. And I enjoy doing the work of collecting those stories, hearing those stories, and then connecting with people because they want to share um, something of who they are and what they've experienced. And I feel like I always learn from listening to those folks. So that's the work that that um, gets me out of bed in the mornings. Amen, amen. And so our final question is gonna be a fun one. So um, staying on the topic of, of writing, um, I'm always uh, interested, especially having uh, spent the majority of these last three years at home and having to uh, reimagine working space um, I'm interested to know for you, if you had all the money in the world and you needed to build your brand new uh, writing, reading and thinking space, where would it be? What would it look like? What would it smell like? Maybe what art would you get? And maybe as well, what is playing in the background? Paint the picture for the people. Yeah, well, the most productive space and time that I had obviously was was during COVID. And I lived at that time in a neighborhood in North Carolina where it was just quiet. I prayed to be able to move into a neighborhood where um, there were just a lot of um, elders around because I knew that, <laughs> that if I did that, then I would probably find the quiet that I needed to just rest. Mm -hmm. And I was able to find this house, a small little cottage. Somebody called it a writing cottage when, when she <laughs> learned that I had purchased it. But I chose to have an office where I could just open up the curtains and the person who lived there before me, who was a retired individual who actually moved into a retirement community, there were all of these flowers, these pink and white azaleas. Um, there was these very tall oak trees that used to scare me when the hurricanes and things would come, but they were still there. And just so many different kinds of flowers, um, roses as well, right in um, the view of the window. And that was a space where I could just see the beauty of nature 
keeping in mind also that Alice Dunbar Nelson would write about nature, actually. And in the afternoons, I would walk through the neighborhood and sometimes there would be deer out, even dancing. One day I saw deer dancing and I've never seen anything Whoa, like that. Oh, you, you got to write about that one day. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> I've seen this in cartoons. I had never actually seen it, but they were dancing around in some in my neighbor's yard, two houses down. And, you know, rabbits would, would pop by and this kind of thing. And so that was because of the beauty of it and because the noise that I would hear would be somebody mowing the lawn. Um, I could play some music. I love black violin. They're, they do something to my brain that makes me just want to create. Um, and so that's what it was. It wasn't a very large room. It was filled with papers and books and that kind of thing. But I could just focus on the writing and sometimes I would stop and just look out that window. And it was it was just a, a beautiful, serene space of quiet. And I miss it terribly because, you know, Houston is just very different in terms of, of um, flowers and the, the trees are still green. I don't understand that, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because it's November, I don't understand why the leaves don't change. But in any case, that was the most creative space I was uh, blessed to have for about a three-year period. It's just beautiful. Awesome. Well, Dr. Green, it has been a pleasure having you on New Books in African American Studies. I'm so happy we could, you know, come together for this conversation. And uh, listeners, please make sure you get this amazing, amazing new book published by Bloomsbury. Um, and that book is called Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson, written by none other than Dr. Tara T. Green, chair uh, and class distinguished professor, gotta make sure, and chair of African-American studies at the University of Houston. Thank you so much. And we definitely look forward to uh, when the time comes that you have seven, uh, uh, you know, authored books and, and edited books, uh, make sure to, to come back and, and I'll definitely make sure to have you on. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Adam. And good luck with your graduate studies, too. Yes, yes. One, oh my gosh, a year and a half. Jesus mm -hmm. Christ, thank you. And I'll be done. So uh, very much looking forward to it. So uh, listeners, Please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcast, And that's New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. And until next time, y'all, it's Adam McNeil, your host, over and out.